0: Folks, before we start the podcast, I would like to mark an occasion. It's strange, but the tortoise shack is five years old. Uh, yeah, in September 2017, I sat down with uh, Baldy and I said, Come on, we start a podcast. And then on a Thursday evening, he came over and we got an iPad and some gamer headsets. Thousands of podcasts later, various new podcasts introduced to the media, and lots and lots and lots of uh things we're proud of and we've made lots of mistakes as well to tell the truth but we've we're still here we're putting out the content we're having conversations and thousands of people are listening it's in fact it's tens of thousands and it's just it's fantastic i just can't get my head around it i want to thank everybody who's contributed everybody who's encouraged everybody who's discouraged All of our guests, it's been absolutely phenomenal to to speak to so many amazing people, get to know so many amazing people, and the people we get to work with. Working with Caroline, Martin, Rory, Joella, Benita, Deborah, James, Timmy, uh, I I mean, obviously, Dr. Vicky Conway, um, and so, so many more. Um, We have had a really, really, really amazing five years And I want to thank you, the listener, uh, because it really helps to know that people out there get something from these podcasts. It means that we keep going, even if it is difficult at times. And I appreciate it. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much uh, for five years of support. And we hope that there's many more years to come. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. And today I'm joined by Tricia Keelty of the St. Vincent de Paul and Tanya Ward from the Children's Rights Alliance. And we are discussing the upcoming budget um, and what should be done. And also the in particular around the cost of living crisis, which really is hitting hard. Um, and also housing, and in particular, focus on children as well. Um, and I might go to you, Tricia, first. Um, just in terms of, I suppose again, we've you know we were talking recently about this. That, you know, when people are are, are feeling it and, and experiencing it, the cost of living crisis. And um, but just in terms of St. Vincent de Paul figures, I've heard um, on the the media where, you, where you've been talking around. You know, the extent of the increase in calls. The actual, like, what is actually going on? What are you? what are your services um, and support uh, networks and and seeing in terms of that increase in people looking for support?
2: Yeah, I suppose the the demand for services has increased um, this year. We're up about 20% compared to the same time last year in terms of the volume of calls. A lot of our regional offices are saying, you know, over the summertime, particularly June and July, there will be a little bit of downtime in terms of requests. But they're comparing it to like Christmas time, winter months, um, really in terms of the level yeah. of calls that are coming in,
3: yeah,
2: uh, which is really really worrying because this is before you know winter time where we're going to really see that kind of impact on people in terms of energy prices. So, like to put it into context, up to the end of last month, we had one hundred and twenty five thousand requests for help um, so this you know, year,
1: so far this year so
2: far this year so yeah. I think we, we probably will surpass the the 200,000 mark which would be a first for the organization oh, um, you know so it's it's really worrying and you know obviously The most recent kind of increase in calls was related to back to school costs. You know, on average, 30 calls an hour from parents worried about how they were going to meet um, all the books, school books, boundary contributions and everything that goes with that as well. So, you know, I think we're facing into a very, very difficult winter, but that's not to say that an increase in poverty a dramatic and a deepening of poverty is inevitable. The budget can really make a difference, and it's really about ensuring that the supports are there for the people most impacted, as well as investing in services that reduce the cost of living for
1: everyone. And just, you know, when you're saying there again, you know, people ringing St. Vincent de Paul, you know, it, it's in some respects for some people, you know, it's a difficult thing to do in and of itself to have to ask, go beyond, you know, our existing welfare supports and. To try and look for help, and um, you're saying you know, people worried about you know, different costs. Obviously, they need support in terms of they can't cover the costs of living,
2: yeah, that's right. And it's, it's not easy to pick up the phone, even though we are here, we're here to help people. You know, it's a, a service for people across the country, um, but people are just at breaking point. They're already at the brink prior to this because we have a poverty crisis before this cost of living crisis, which has only just been exacerbated for people like lone parents, people with disabilities, children, uh, older people living alone. All those groups are really, really being hit hard now. Um, And we're just worried about what will happen to people in the long term, because when you're worried about paying bills, you're just in a state of chronic chronic stress all the time. Um, and that just has such a big impact, not only on your mental health, but on your physical health as well. Um, and we're hearing calls from parents, you know, have said, I've paid all the bills and now I've only five euro left to try and get food on the table this week. And
1: five euro for food five,
2: for five week. euro for food for the week. Um, and that's a reality. That's not a, a isolated case. That would be quite common. You know, every second call could be something along those lines. Um, and, You know, that's that's the basic things, the very basic things that you need to survive. And parents really, because 70 percent of our calls come from households with children and parents, you know, are trying to do their best to mitigate the impact of this on their children's lives. But it's getting harder and harder to do that.
1: That that is a stark figure. I wasn't aware of that. Seventy percent of calls to St. Vincent de Paul come from households which are families with children.
2: That's right. And, and the majority of those are a mother parenting alone. Um, and that's not surprising, given the very high rates of, of poverty among non-parents. Yeah. So, so that's the reality. So child poverty is obviously a huge concern for SVP and, and obviously for the Children's Rights Alliance as well and other organisations. Um, and we were making progress. Uh, around child poverty prior to the pandemic. And that's kind of been derailed. And, you know, there's a lot of worry and concern about that now, obviously, given the the long-term impacts for children for the rest of their lives and into adulthood as well.
1: Yeah, no, I'm really struck by that figure because I would have thought, you know, St. Vincent de Paul would have, you know, people requiring support would have been across household types. And, you know, the ones we talked about and, and you mentioned there in terms of, but that it would have not been so concentrated on families and children that that is really that these are the households who you know are most acute in terms of need that existing state supports just don't cover or their incomes that they're receiving just literally they cannot survive on their incomes and as you say that these are the households that are suffering then that chronic stress that stress and the impacts on children um that's that's quite something i just one question before i go to tanya um, in terms of the housing crisis then and, you know, rents in particular, how much do you see that impacting um, or intersecting with the kind of rising cost of living? Or Yeah,
2: so I suppose it, obviously that's always been a feature of, of the the types of calls that we get in terms of, of rent, kind of putting p- that pressure on, on family budgets. That's the priority. I'll pay the rent. I can figure out the rest. Yeah. Um, but that, because... The the ri- big issue with us is is that we would see quite often is HAP and the HAP top ups, yeah. um, causing awful difficulties for households, and, and because that gap is grown over the last number of years between what the limits are and what market rents are. Mm. Um, you know, obviously that's a concern. Now they have increased the discretionary limits, yeah. um, which will be helping. Now people have to opt into that. The county councils aren't reaching out to people to actually ensure that they get a rent review so they can get the benefit of that. And right. um, So we're trying to link people in to make sure you know that you may be able to get additional support with your rent, which mm. can make a difference. But really it comes down to um, a lack of social and affordable housing that gives people that security that gives families the foundation to plan for the future and give that security for their children and that's that's just becoming all the more difficult in terms of all the pressures that we're seeing across the the housing sector and particularly in the rental sector as well
0: yeah yeah thanks tricia just going to pause the podcast for a moment to ask you to help us Uh, we rely on listeners we have no ads no sponsors it is purely listener-led listener-driven maybe value is led and then listener driven but nonetheless it's all it's all of one big family so if you can if you enjoy what we do go to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack the link is right there on the podcast that you're listening to now have a look at the levels see if there's something that you're happy to chip in to keep those mics on it's a lot of work we know the content goes out for free but that does not mean that it doesn't have value this is the way you can help pay it forward and keep us going uh, patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack and i'll let you get back to the podcast thank you so much um tanya in terms
1: of children then and cost of living how are your members seeing this impacting on children
3: yeah i i think the big thing coming through from the members is actually food and and, and it often is uh because it affects children so much in terms of their developments like we know that when small eat children so
1: much of it every five minutes i need food i'm hungry i'm starving absolutely and and it's so it is so it's physiologically for them literally they you know they need the food yeah so yeah i
3: mean like small children will um they feel unloved when they're not fed is the truth but that's how that's how they understand it is that i'm not loved when i'm not fed and then children as they get older it just You know they're very irritable. They find it hard to to participate in school. They find it hard to hang out with their friends. All of that really affects their their development along the line. Now, Now, saying that, a lot of parents. Will be trying to do everything they can to prevent it. They'll they'll go without feeding themselves to try and feed their children. But yeah. as Tricia said, if there's families with only five euros left at the end of the week to pay for food, there's not really much they can do with that. They can starve yeah. themselves as parents, but they can't. You can't feed a child on five euros a week.
1: Yeah, yeah. And in terms of the, the again, you know that issue there around child poverty, and Trisha mentioned it there. What is your analysis of what this is doing in terms of the numbers of children who are being pushed into poverty because of this?
3: Yeah, I mean, Tricia kind of has said there, I suppose, we were starting to make progress when it came to child poverty uh, before the pandemic and particularly because they were, the government was starting to invest in cash payments for children on welfare um, and they were also starting to invest in services that would make a difference to children. So really starting to expand their, their free school meals programs, starting to expand investments in early years to try and make it more affordable. But I think the current crisis, you know, there's a number of drivers, and I think one of the things really driving this, uh, apart from the energy prices, is actually the cost of housing. So that mm-hmm. has that has, you know, caused more families to fall into poverty. But the other issue that really comes up, and these people are invisible in the poverty statistics, because the poverty statistics. They don't pick up, let's say, travellers and holding sites. They don't pick up refugee children living in refugee accommodation or direct provision. Um, And it, it's based on what your income is. But we know there are lots of families on pretty good incomes where it's simply just being eroded because of the cost of rent. So, you know, the real... The real experience of children across the board isn't really being, being picked up from the child poverty statistics. So you can be sure it's far worse than, than what even the statistics are, are actually telling us. And I suppose what really concerns me about this generation of children is they've just lived through the pandemic.
1: Mm.
3: They've had a massive disruption on their education already, massive disruption on their friendships. Like One of the things we're hearing from all the members um, coming through is anxiety among children and young people, uh, serious mental health issues, long waiting lists on services, long waiting lists on therapies for children with disabilities. And then alongside this, they're also having to deal with, they're hungry. They don't have a new coach, you know, going to school in September. Um, and there's, you know, there's a real risk of the family falling into homelessness. So it's a perfect storm, really, of issues that children and young people are, are dealing with at this moment in time. And as Trish said, it's not inevitable. There's there's very sensible things the government has done and can do actually to yeah. address what what's happening at the moment. There's very sensible investments um, ahead of them. I mean, one of the things I really appreciated this year, and I really hope it goes national as soon as possible, is they've extended hot school meals to all Desh primary schools. And uh, you know, DASH is about you know half of children in poverty. in those DASH schools that they they, they they are they get a higher resource in, uh, from the government because there's so many children who are disadvantaged there, and that's really important because um, we 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 know that you know it, this helps the cost of living. As children are being fed as as part of the school day, really what you want to see is hot school meals go national throughout the country that could make a big difference to a lot of children we know that every child benefits we know that from statistics in, in europe when you have hot school meals but disadvantaged children they'll they'll benefit benefit the most we have a uh programme at the moment where we're funding uh, our members to deliver uh, programmes to address uh, food poverty over the summer months. And CrossCare was one of the organisations uh, working in the space Is a long track record of addressing food poverty. But they... They were one of the grantees, and they worked with uh, eighty children over the summer months, basically, and fed yeah. them, got them breakfast every morning for that, those summer months. And you know, when you see those statistics, you just wonder what would have happened for those children if cross care wasn't there.
1: To and what was the impact response. for them?
3: Well, it made an enormous difference. To be honest, I mean, these are these are families where children aren't being fed because the families are barely surviving. Um, and you know, a lot of them are working families as well. I mean, they have jobs. It's just that they, they, they're finding it really difficult to put food on the table because they're paying the rent and they're paying the, the energy bills as well. And, and I mean, the, the other thing we know is happening, and, and Trish will have t- talked about this before, is that families are starting to fall into real debt as well. I mean, they ran, they ran out of any savings that they had during the pandemic. So you'll see families actually become buried in in a hole of debt uh, as time moves
1: on. Yeah. And of course, yeah, for many of these families there was no savings. Um, so it was literally week to week, month to month, and then you know, in terms of the increased costs, there is no um buffer there in terms of, of to draw on and, and the issue of arrears is a major issue. And um Trisha, just on that, in terms of um, you know, the arrears question and it's something we talked about, I remember during the pandemic, the question of the moratorium on um, disconnections from electricity and energy where is that at now are energy companies disconnecting
2: so disconnections have stayed low since the moratorium was lifted because they were encouraging so there's the energy engaged code so if you're engaging with your supplier they can't disconnect you okay. so they've been offering more flexible payment plans things like that there's been some debt relief we've been working with suppliers around this to ensure that the supports are there for customers in difficulty as well Now, this the regulator has announced an extension of the Christmas monitorium. um, So that will take place from December up until February. Usually it's only for four weeks over Christmas, um, which is welcome. But our concern and what we've been saying repeatedly is that prepay customers aren't protected uh, from disconnection monitoriums because if you can't top up your meter, Yourself self-disconnecting. There's there's no protections there. They're so vulnerable. It's a really, really vulnerable cohort of people. And we know people on low incomes are more likely to have prepay meters either because they have debt and it was in, in, installed to address that or they're in private rented accommodation where a prepay meter may already be installed when you move in and then you've got a little choice yeah. in terms of switching and, and things like know, that.
1: Do we know, uh, obviously somebody knows, but I don't know if you know, the scale of people who are on prepay do we have numbers on that so or? there's
2: there's forty seven thousand people on what you would call a financial hardship meter so that's been in, installed by esb because you have arrears and this is the way of paying that back so every time you top up 25 percent is taken to uh, to pay off some of your debt then there's what they call lifestyle meters these terms are are terrible, really. Yeah, but that, yeah. That's what they're called. So they would be ones that would see as a consumer choice. People would opt that for that yeah. because they think it's a it's a good way of managing their money, but yeah. they, they are very, very expensive. So we are getting calls from people and we have been since last winter saying, I used to top up my meter, my electricity meter by 30 euro. That's what I budgeted. I'd get six days. Now I'm getting to three days and it's empty. And um, so we have calls from people who've said my fridge has been off for two days. All the food is gone. That's another cost for the family yeah. We've calls from people who, you know, the other issue as well is oil, uh, particularly households in rural areas, because the minimum now that for a fill of oil is about 250 and fifty euro. the oil company won't come out for anything less than that. So that's impossible for someone on a low income to meet. So we had calls from, from families who weren't able to take hot showers and, um, you know, being able to turn on the washing machine. All this is part of energy poverty that we don't really talk about. Parents worried about their kids going into school and maybe the uniform isn't as clean as it should be or things like that. And that that worry about kind of being stigmatized or the impact that would have on children in their school as well is also a concern. So there's the disconnection monitorium does protect people in certain circumstances, yeah. but there's other, if you've got yeah. their fuel sources or things like that, um, you are very, very vulnerable. Um, yeah. And that's why we've been kind of trying to highlight those customers who are reliant on those sources of energy in terms of
1: additional protections as well. Yeah. So, Trisha, for you, what are the for the SVP, what are the main things you think should be done in the budget?
2: So, from our point of view, really, it's about um, ensuring that the social protection system is protecting people on the lowest incomes so at a minimum it needs to at least match inflation and that's a 20 euro increase at a minimum in core social welfare rates and we also want to see an increase in payments for children in receipt of the qualified child increase so 12 euro for children over 12 and 7 euro for children um under 12. that's that's what's required um to keep people standing still. Mm. Um, And at the same time, then we need additional supports for lone parents who are working in particular um, in receipt of the job seekers transition payment that should be extended out until their youngest child reaches the age, age of 18. At the moment, it stops at 14 and there's a drop of income for parents who are working full time. We also want to see targeted supports for people with disabilities and the introduction of a cost of disability payment. Report after report has shown the extra costs for people who have a disability and that needs to be recognised in the social protection system. And then, of course, we need to increase the fuel allowance um, quite significantly, but we also want it expanded to more households. So we are calling for it to be expanded to people in receipt of the working family payment. That's a, a targeted payment for people people in low pay Um, and that would make a massive difference to those households because we talk about the energy credit, um, which is really expensive and obviously putting money in people's pockets, even people on low incomes, that's going to help. But that costs nearly 400 million. For 68 million, if you could expand it to the working family payment recipients, which is about 50,000 households, that would give those families a net benefit of 1500 euro over the winter months and and would cost significantly less. So they're the type of choices that government can make. And that's what we're kind of pushing. And then at the same time, investing in services like rural public transport, investing in childcare, you know, moving towards a public model of of very affordable and free childcare for low-income households. And then the other issue that we're continually pushing as well is moving towards genuinely free primary and secondary education, um, and that means free school books for children and end to voluntary contributions. They're, they're the key things that would really make a difference to children in poverty, but they're also enhancing the, the social infrastructure of the entire country that helps everyone um, and obviously is in the best interest of all children as well. Um, and then obviously housing is, is the big one as well. And we're, we're particularly looking at the, the need to invest in homeless prevention, Mm. around rent arrears and things like that um, having a a fund there to protect tenancies that are at risk of um, falling into homelessness as well. So they're kind of our core, our core messages. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the need to, to target resources, but also investing in our public services.
1: Yeah. And, and in terms of the, what the government, it looks like the government is going to do, around welfare, do you think this, or in terms of what we know, what does it look like at the moment?
2: I suppose that, so the tax strategy papers were published um, last month. So they yeah. give the option papers for government in terms of what they can do. Um, and one of the options was a 15 euro increase in core social welfare which was kind of balked at, I think in terms of, you know, people saying this is three times the amount that it would have been in terms of the traditional fiver that would be applied to social welfare rates. I suppose we're concerned that the the message is that you need 20 euro to keep people where they are.
3: Um,
2: That's the minimum. So, if if it's seen that we're we're not even going to do that as a minimum, then we are there will be no doubt an increase in poverty, and of course we need to also protect those who are furthest behind as well through additional supports. So it's it's hard to see um, exactly where it will be pitched. I also think they may try and um, include some one-off measures. Again, obviously that will help people getting money into their pockets, but really no one is predicting deflation. Uh, the level of uh, prices are probably going to be maintained and plateau for a while. Mm -hmm. So we really need to ensure that we're giving permanent increases in social welfare rates to help people cope. And again, you know, I continually say this, we have to recognise that the rates for working age families, particularly for single adults and lone parents, are set at level below what is required to meet a minimum standard of living and effectively are we have poverty social welfare rates um and all we're asking is just to, to keep it to make that not get worse so if that's not happening then you know that's a, a very very um stark situation that we're going to be heading into
1: yeah yeah thanks for that it's a really important um analysis and figures for us to be able to you know understand and assess what the budget might do you know in, in terms of when they do come out with it what what they should be doing and, and hopefully um, help in terms of pressure and in, in doing moving towards that and um, thank you for that Tanya in terms of the Children's Rights Alliance then what are you looking for as the key what do you think should be the key measures that the government should introduce in the budget
3: I mean you, you essentially have the roadmap there for Patricia for if the government was able to introduce all that it'd make an enormous difference and I suppose
1: well, well they can introduce it if they decided to introduce yeah, it yeah it?
3: Yeah, if they decided to, and obviously, I think one of the the reasons why I, I often think in this, and I'm in I'm in the game now a long time. And I do think it's about voting. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a big role to play. Um, yeah, Um, A lot of people in lower incomes aren't voting. And so we need to get them voting. Uh, mm. Children, young people can't vote. You know, we need to get 16, 17 year olds vote. I think that's, I think that could be a game changer when it comes to decisions around uh, addressing poverty. But I suppose in addition to, to what Trish is talking about, I suppose one of the things we're also focusing on is on food poverty. So, um Definitely there's an interest, I think, at government level around food poverty. And, you know, Ireland has always been the outlier when it comes to lack of school meals being part of the school day yeah. what we're hearing from members is you know they really want to see school meals happening within let's say uh, all schools because half of children in poverty are outside DASH they're in rural Ireland a lot of them aren't in that DASH program and rural Ireland's where some of the lowest incomes are in, in the country but the other places we'd love to see school meals happening or, or, or meal provision is in early years you know early years system really stepping up in relation to that uh, and in youth settings as well. So we would hear from youth workers that what they're doing is they are young people are arriving really hungry and sometimes they're digging into their own pockets to, to, to feed them. So, you know, really, the, if you provide food through all these different uh, supports and and, and you know, food banks isn't the answer, actually, right? because food banks are something very different. But. I think where we're going in this country is people are going to be relying on food banks and they shouldn't because we should be just giving them income so they can decide yeah. what to feed their children. Yeah. Food banks are for people who are struggling at managing income. So people with addiction issues, uh, you know, those kind of issues, that's where food banks can be very, very important. The other piece then is early years, you know, There's major things happening uh, this week in terms of the earlier sector, particularly pay rates are going to go up for people working in the services. that's really welcome. I'd say the rates need to be higher to really retain yeah. the kind of quality staff that you want. And it really affects children when you, when you don't have that. Um, I know Minister for Children is talking about um, an investment into early years that is going to, they're trying to reduce the cost of, of early years provision. For us, though, I think one of the challenges for our families living in poverty is that there is the National Childcare Scheme. It's a really good system. It's helping a lot of families with childcare costs. But the, because we don't have a public childcare system and because we have a market-based childcare system, and if you happen to live in the wrong parts of the country, your childcare fees are going to be too high for you.
1: Yeah. And
3: even the National childcare Scheme is not going to help you out. And, you know, an extra five or 20, 30, 40 euros, if you're already on low income, and as, as Tricia said, the, the welfare payments aren't actually enough to feed your child a healthy diet. All the assessments have been done in relation to that. If you're trying to pay childcare, you're just taking food out of your children's mouth to be able to do that. So really what we want the government to be able to do is uh, just cover the costs, you know, 98% of the costs uh, of childcare, no matter where you are in the country, if you're on those lower incomes, because um, all the work that's been done on addressing child poverty, and Professor Mary Daly, based in Oxford, she's been doing a lot of analysis she said the single most important measure to address poverty is actually early years education. So yeah. when mothers are able to get into quality jobs, when they're able to, you know, get education and training, you know, they just, they they have higher incomes and they can lift their children out of poverty, but the early years has this equalizing effect on, on, on all children. Um, and if you have good wraparound early years provision uh, you know, it, it, it really does prepare children for school and to do as well uh, uh, as all of our counterparts. And we're still at the point in Ireland where we actually don't have a national programme, a national called deaf programme in early years. It is on the policy book, a big strategy called um, First Five. And they're the kind of things the government needs to be prioritizing and also making sure that there are services available, earlier services available where all the education and training opportunities are for women. And it's mostly women who are trying to get back into the workplace and education and training.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, it's so... The childcare issue and the early years education is absolutely it's fundamental. Um and it is so expensive, you know, across the board and in particular for, you know, low and middle income, you know, households who are trying to cover costs like it's childcare can be, you know, more than the rent, more, more yeah. than the mortgage. And that's even with, you know, the additional um the ECI years, the the early childhood years, and it's um it's really something that we have neglected of course for historical uh, conservative reasons along yeah. with the failure to develop um you know a proper but i do think that there's increasing acknowledgement at some level but i you know the resourcing is, st- is still not really there and there's not really a clear political commitment to actually provide public affordable early years education and childcare which you know to drive that forward um and i think that's it's absolutely urgently needed um, I just wanted before I finish <clears throat> to get your reaction. There was um, to we talked briefly before we came on about this, and in, in terms of homelessness, and we can't not do. Um, I think you know a budget uh, discussion about poverty, and in terms of cost of living, and we have mentioned it already without discussing homelessness, in particular around children and families. And I was contacted by um, I've been you know contacted by different people in terms of who are in homelessness, who are becoming homeless. Um, in relation to their stories because I've been sharing them on social media anonymously and and they have been contacting me because they want to at least get their story out there um, and one mother shared her story and I'll just read you a few bits and I just want to get uh, your reaction to it um, she's in a situation where there's herself and her three kids, young kids and they are um in a situation of homelessness and they, she describes how she is essentially um, going, you know, between different friends' houses, um, essentially couch surfing, um, and in this situation of hidden, ho- hidden homelessness, not counted at all, because she's not in emergency accommodation. But I, she describes, and I think it's quite important, there's a couple of things. She describes that, um, that why she wouldn't go into emergency accommodation. And she says that... Um, she said, I suffer with depression and anxiety. So as you can imagine, I'm feeling really low, knowing I'm putting people out by staying there. And that's referring to in couch surfing. She says it's causing problems in their own families. But she says, anyone I know who's been sent to these hostels have been robbed. Their door has been kicked in by drunks. Um, and they've been thrown in with all sorts. And she says, I have panic attacks, even thinking of having to go to something like that. And my two older boys, um, think about this, her children um, begged me not to put them through that. So the children obviously not wanting to go into emergency accommodation. She contacted the council the council said they had nothing um, and she said that uh, the just you know she's staying with, with families who have kids as well. She said the family member um, where you know where, where kids are are constantly you know pissed off at my excuses. She said they're having to try to take care of their own two kids as well um, and she says that you know trying to you know nowhere where to cook a meal, lost my job due to this. Um, And she said as well, you know, that she said, describes that she says, I want you to share the story, she said, "um, but I don't I want you to make anonymous because my eldest is so afraid of getting bullied and slagged again for being homeless. You know, what's I I just think this is utterly, utterly heartbreaking. And, you know, it just the fact that we do allow, you know, people to be left in this situation, families and children, I just think I don't know Have as Have politicians, governments just become, you know, numb, normalised to this? Do they not? I I just don't understand how anyone can accept this. Tanya? I mean, uh, I would say that they they
3: haven't become numb in one way. but the the question is, are they making the right decisions uh, to to address it? I mean, I remember when I was uh, at a government meeting and I got up to talk about the impact of homelessness on on children. Yeah. And the officials who were working in the space left basically, right? And um, uh, so I didn't take it personally, and I had a chat with a few people uh, around the table. What, what what happened there? And they said they just can't take it. Actually, uh, it's really getting to. Uh, it's really getting to the people who are working in the space. Uh, it's very hard to hear the, the personal stories um, and even though, like, of of you know, they would bring in trainers, you know, to work with them on dealing with the dealing with the stories and and, and the impacts of it. I think it, go, it goes down to not the right things are being done, you know, uh, and you know that we, we need this big massive public building program of housing to address it, and there's there's no other way around it. You know, we're relying on the private rental market to deal with everything, and it's just causing these major issues. Um, I mean, it, it, it always does concern. when homeless accommodation that is being selected is not the appropriate accommodation. I mean, that can be a common story and it hasn't always been the case that they've fallen, they've used homeless accommodation that's not appropriate for children and young people and families. And I do think sometimes uh, in the housing world, uh, and, and this is at government levels that, you know, there, there can be a lack of acceptance that you have to change what you're doing sometimes when you are supporting children and families and even in their stats, you know, they don't count children, they name them, they call them uh, dependents. Mm. Um, and I think that 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 that's telling you a, a story. But I think we need to keep on hearing these stories. And I know it's so hard for people living in poverty and, and, and living through homelessness, the shame of it, because you feel personal failure. And it's not your failure it's that you're living the system that has failed you because uh, your income isn't, isn't high enough. I think we need to keep hearing the stories because, it, you know, because it, 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 you can, you can't just forget it. You move on to the next crisis, I think, at, at government level. So I think what the work you're doing to elevate these stories, but getting other people to come forward, I think is going to be very important to get the kind of changes that we need. I mean, the, the last thing I'd say is I think one of the challenges sometimes for um, the government is they're trying to service everyone. And so the people who are property owners, investors, et cetera. So yeah. some of the decisions they're making, they're trying to benefit everyone in their in, in their decisions. And actually, in this particular situation, they have to focus on one set of citizens or people in the country at this point in time because the market has failed. And I think that's the issue and the direction of travel we need to go in.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Tanya, for that. Tricia?
3: Yeah, I, I agree with Tanya, the importance of of sharing those stories,
2: Rory, because... You know, every month we hear the homeless stats come up and it's important to remember the the families behind those. Mm -hmm. But importantly, as we said, we were talking about prior to to coming on here was around that that woman and her family wouldn't be actually counted in the 10,000 odds. Um, families who are are currently experiencing homelessness because she's not in emergency accommodation. So we really need to move to a wider definition of of homelessness so we can ensure that we're tackling it effectively because if we're, we're not measuring it, then how do we know the scale of the problem? And I think it's really telling in the summary of of social housing assessment report, which is published every year by the Department of Housing, which gives a a breakdown of people who've qualified for social housing. And about 20,000 households are currently doubling up with family and friends. So in other European countries, they would be included in the homeless figures as well, but they're not here. Um, and that's really important to say um, in terms of data and the importance of that. But yeah, it really is, the, you know, the 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 long-term impact of this and, you know, the, the end, the cost of it, you know, not only the human cost of it, but the cost to the state in mm-hmm. terms of dealing with the long-term consequences of this for children really needs to be pushed to the fore. Um, and I'd agree, you know, just to, when we talk about crisis and in the media and, you know, people can get crisis fatigue, I think, as well in terms of engagement with it. And we just can't switch off. And I know you, you call this the podcast of hope. And I think it's really important that, you know, we're giving out messages of hope and that, you know, none of this is inevitable. As I said at the start, you know, there are things government can do and, and, and civil society organizations to highlight and keep advocating for for that change is really, really important
1: yeah absolutely uh, uh, sorry tanya you want to come in
3: yeah and i do i suppose i completely agree with trisha i mean like it, it, it's all about focusing on the solutions because it's it's not it's not helpless it's not hopeless mm. um there's lots of ways out of this but the one thing i'd love to see is actually a broader take on accommodation and housing when it comes to children and young people because one of the things we really notice because we you know, campaign for children homelessness, we campaign for refugee children, we're campaign for children in the care system. Is this just fragmented way in which housing is dealt with by government. So TUSLAS competing with the Department of Housing and the, the local councils and Department of Children itself, who's trying to provide accommodation for refugees and Ukrainians and etc. And it just really strikes me that, you know, we actually need a fresh start actually when it comes to housing policy. And, you know, housing development plans should be taken account of the needs of Children with disabilities who need accommodation, who care facilities, children who are in the care system, refugees. I think we need a fresh start, I think, when it comes to planning our our communities and localities on on housing, because we can't have a situation where, you know, government bodies and uh, state bodies are actually competing with each other to provide housing in the same area.
1: Yeah, no, good point. Well, listen, Tricia, Tanya, thank you so much uh, for joining me today on Reboot Republic. And to echo what Tricia said, you know, that it, it, it can become, you know, very difficult and people are living it and themselves, you know, can are, are despairing and they absolutely are and they are being broken. Um, but, you know, it is the importance of spaces like this and all the work that you do. Um, In highlighting their stories and ensuring that people both understand what is going on and hear themselves and their experiences in the the public debate and public discussion, that they're not ignored and hidden. But also then, as you say, that there's also solutions and we highlight that this isn't inevitable and that um, there are measures that can be done now, right now, to make a real difference. And we do hope um, and, you know, call on government to make those decisions in budget Uh, in the upcoming budget so thank you so much um, and thank you so much to our listeners as well and we will talk to you all again very very soon